Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. So today we are going to continue with John Benet Ramsey, the murder of a 16-year-old, a 16-year-old murder, of the murder of a six-year-old child whose family is highly suspected of being her killers, and I also believe that. There was over 60,000 pieces of evidence in this case, and I strongly believe that there was too much evidence to solve this case. I know a lot of people are probably looking at me like, why would you say that? How is that even a thing? But I think there was just so much evidence that it made everything so confusing, and there was just so many bizarre actions that people made it was just such a bizarre case and so that is why today i wanted to do the case of john benet ramsey john benet patricia ramsey was born on august 6 1992 john and patsy ramsey in atlanta georgia she had an older brother named burke and three half siblings from john's first marriage a lot of people wonder why john benet has the name that she does because it's quite a unique name what her parents did was they basically named her after them so they took john's first name and his middle name and put a french twist on his middle name hence john benet and obviously patricia was after her mother the family moved to boulder colorado in 1991 and at the time john was the president and ceo of access graphics which was a computer services company the family lived in a beautiful upskill neighborhood in a 15-room tudor style brick mansion the ramsey's often hosted events with as many as 50 guests and just days before john benet was killed the family had participated in a holiday walkthrough of their home the mansions in their neighborhood were on display for christmas and it's estimated that hundreds of people walked through the ramsey home for a tour now i know that seems like it's kind of a weird fact to put in this video as i'm introducing the family and the home but as i'm talking about the home i wanted to definitely point that out because i will come back to that tour later on in the video john benet was said to have been full of energy and full of life according to those that knew her she was extremely friendly and outgoing she was very sweet to all of the other kids at her school she was known to share her toys with them and although john benet was very bubbly and had an extremely outgoing friendly upbeat personality she also was known to have a very observant and curious side detective steve thomas who worked on john benet's case described her as being very interested in listening to adult conversation she was very attentive and had a very strong vocabulary and a very strong sense of logic she also had a very strong sense of self and on a family vacation in charlevoix john benet was running around the dock barefoot and her aunt pam asked her to put on her shoes to which john benet replied i want to feel the rhythm of the earth under my feet fortunately if you 
look up John Bonet, you will find tons of articles that talk about her beauty, which John Bonet was an absolutely stunningly beautiful child. But I really wanted to talk about that other side of John Bonet, the playful little six-year-old side of John Bonet that often isn't seen in the articles. Oftentimes, when you look up articles on John Bonet, you'll also see that she was heavily involved in child beauty pageants, which she was. John Bonet's involvement in pageants had a lot to do with her mother Patsy, who was a beauty queen herself. She was actually crowned Miss West Virginia in 1977, and so John Bonet definitely wanted to kind of take after her mother's footsteps. And Patsy was more than happy to help guide John Bonet through the process. John Bonet won her first beauty pageant at just four years old. She went on to win Little Miss Colorado, Little Miss Charlotte Boy. Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl, America's Royal Miss, Miss Colorado Sunburst, and National Tiny Miss Beauty. So for a six-year-old, that is quite a bit. JonBenet was only on the child beauty pageant circuit for two years, and she's already taken home a lot of titles. Due to the number of pageants that JonBenet was in, she was often in dance classes and vocal lessons. She had her hair dyed bleach blonde and was often seen in full makeup. She was also in a lot of professional photo shoots and was usually in customized outfits. Patsy was definitely big on keeping up appearances and was known to be a little bit controlling. She was known to have matched outfits with her daughter, which is of course a little bit odd, and always wanted everything to look absolutely perfect. From the outside, JonBenet always was very put together. However, underneath this picture of perfection were a lot of problems that I will tap back into later on in this video. The Ramses were extremely social and were in very affluent circles in the older community. They loved hosting gatherings being around a lot of people, and this was no different in December of 1996. It was a month full of holiday parties, and the Ramses actually hosted a party themselves on December 23rd, just two days before JonBenet was last to be seen alive. This should have been a fun party. It was full of people, a lot of JonBenet's friends were there, and even Santa was there. Of course, it wasn't really Santa. Underneath the costume and performance was 67-year-old Bill McReynolds, who had played Santa at the Ramses' previous parties. I just want to make a note of that name because I will be coming back to it later on in the video. JonBenet should have been having fun at this party, however, she wasn't her normal, bubbly, outgoing self. In fact, one family friend saw JonBenet on a stairwell by herself, looking really sad and withdrawn. When she asked her what was wrong, JonBenet replied and said, I don't feel pretty. Now, this is extremely weird for a six-year-old to say. This is the holiday season. She's about to get a lot of presents, so it's very interesting that she was caught up in this idea of never publicly released and the family friend asked JonBenet what she meant by that or if she ever explained why she felt that way. Another extremely important fact about this party is that a 911 call was actually placed. When the dispatcher answered, the caller immediately hung up. So when police arrived at the home following procedures, Susan Stein, a friend of Patsy Ramsey's, answered the door and she said that it was a mistake. The cops asked if they could come in to check the house and she declined and said no.
immediately took John Benet up to her room. They said that she did not wake up this entire time. John said he set her down on the bed, and Patsy proceeded to undress her down to the knit top she was wearing, and she put long bottoms on her and put her to bed. According to John, when they got home, Burke refused to go to sleep right away because he wanted to play with one of his new gifts. So John agreed to help Burke set up this toy, and after that, he was sent to bed. During this time, Patsy was preparing for the trip the next day. According to Detective Steve Thomas, who was on the case, she wasn't particularly excited about the trip. It had been a long holiday season. She'd been hosting a lot of parties. Obviously, she was tired from Christmas and all of the events of that day, and she was sitting and packing and still wrapping gifts late into the evening. After she was done wrapping gifts, John and Patsy said that they went to bed and were asleep for the rest of the night. Early the next morning on December 26th, at around 5.30 a.m., John woke up and took a shower to start to get ready for the day. Shortly after, Patsy woke as well, and she began to apply her makeup. She also put on the outfit she was wearing from the night before, which is extremely odd because Patsy was all about appearances, so it's very interesting that she wore the exact same outfit as the day before. At around 5.45, Patsy said she walked down the spiral staircase to grab some coffee, and on the way down, she noticed pieces of paper that were neatly laid out on the staircase. It was the infamous ransom note. Patsy said she picked up the note and read the first couple of sentences. She didn't even read the rest of it. She just saw that JonBenet had been kidnapped and immediately called for JonBenet, screamed, and ran up the staircase to check JonBenet. Unfortunately, JonBenet was not in her room. John heard the commotion and he ran down from their third floor bedroom and met Patsy in the stairwell on the second floor where they both went to go check on Burke, who was still asleep. After that, John went downstairs to actually read the ransom note while Patsy called 911. The ransom note had said that John Binet had been kidnapped and the kidnappers were demanding $118,000, which was odd because it was around the exact same amount of John's Christmas bonus that year. Officers arrived eight minutes later, and while they were in route, for some reason, Patsy decided to call Fleet and Priscilla White and John and Barbara Purdy, who were close friends of her and John's. There was no reason for Patsy to do this, and it was just the first weird decision Francis made that particular day. Officer Rick French was one of the first officers to arrive at the scene. He immediately read the ransom note and began to search the house for a point of entry from the intruder. He didn't find anything and he went down into the basement as well and searched the entire basement but failed to look into the wine cellar room that was kind of off to the side in the basement. Shortly after that, Fleet and Priscilla White arrived and within 10 to 15 minutes of them arriving, Fleet immediately went down into the basement to search for John Binet. Burke's train room and saw that one of the windows had been broken and the suitcase was placed right underneath it, almost as if someone had used it as a stepping stool to get in and out of the window. He went back over to where the wine cellar room was and he said he opened the door and didn't see anything in there. Within an hour of police arriving at the home, John was supposedly on the phone calling his personal pilot trying to arrange a flight out of Boulder immediately. Why? I'm not quite sure. This is another odd decision that the Ramseys made that day. I have no idea why John would want to leave the state right after his daughter has been kidnapped and is most likely in the state still. Uh, I feel like most parents would want to be near where their child would be possibly returned and wouldn't want to leave the area. Throughout the next few hours, more of the Ramseys' friends continued to arrive and they were allowed to walk freely around the house. The house is literally a crime scene at this point. A young girl has been and the police officers allowed them to walk around the house at will. They were able to go wherever they wanted. Some of them even cleaned up the kitchen, which was possible evidence. I will still to this day never understand why the police did this, why they weren't more, um, 
why they didn't take more control over the crime scene. That's the number one thing you do in an investigation. If someone's been taken or harmed, you want to seal off the crime scene. You want to make sure that you aren't letting the evidence be contaminated. And they actually didn't even seal off John Bonet's room until around 10.30 a.m., which is about four hours after police first arrived. It's also important to note how John and Patsy were acting that day and how they were not. According to Officer French, they did not want to be around each other and were often in separate rooms. John appeared to be kind of cool, calm, and collected. At one point, he was seen checking his mail, while Patsy was at times sobbing hysterically and at other times was sitting lifelessly in a chair. He did say that Patsy was staring at him the whole time, which he found to be extremely odd. At one point, he looked over at Patsy and she apparently had her hands up to her face as she was crying, but he saw that her eyes were peering through her fingers at him. So again, very weird behavior, and he definitely made a note of it while he was in the home. At around 7 a.m., Burke was taken out of the home and was taken to the White family home. And at around 8 a.m., Detective Linda Arndt arrived at the Ramsey house. The ransom note said that the kidnappers would call between 8 and 10 a.m., and when 10 a.m. had come and gone, Detective Linda Arndt definitely made a note of that because no one in the house seemed to notice that 10 a.m. was gone. So if your daughter had been kidnapped and they gave a specific time frame of 8 to 10, still hadn't heard from them, I would assume that you would be completely panicked. You'd wonder if your daughter was okay. You would wonder if the kidnapper had decided to just kill her. I mean, there was literally no reaction, and Detective R really picked up on that and made a note. She also noticed as time went by that people in the home were becoming more and more restless, specifically John Ramsey. So she, I think, was overwhelmed in the situation. She was trying to control the scene. A lot of people have criticized her actions that day by letting people walk around the home. But again, she was the only detective really on the scene that day, and she was trying to control all of these people. She called for backup many times, and she received no relief. So later on in the day, in an effort to distract John, she asked John and his friend Fleet to search the house from top to bottom to see if anything was missing or out of place, if anything looked odd. She also specifically said not to touch anything. Before she could even finish her request, John bolted straight to the basement. First of all, she said from top to bottom, John went straight to the bottom, into the basement, and into Burke's train room. Fleet was right behind him, and John mentioned the window. When Fleet asked about the window, John said that he actually broke the window the summer before when he had locked himself out of the home. He then motioned to the suitcase and kind of told Fleet that was interesting looking, and then he went immediately to the wine cellar room. And according to Fleet, when he opened the door, he screamed before even turning on the light. Again, that's very odd because the wine cellar room was extremely dark, there was no window, so how could he see something and scream when the light wasn't even turned on yet? Regardless, it was there that John Binet's body was found. She was found dressed in a white knit shirt and long underwear with duct tape over her mouth. A garrote made of white cord and a broken artist's paintbrush handle was around her neck, and there was cord around her right wrist. Her body was covered with a white blanket from her bed, and nearby was a nightgown, which one relative described as her favorite possession. John Binet had also been sexually assaulted. Now, going against Detective Arndt's request, John immediately went to the body, ripped off the duct tape, and began to try and untie her arms. And according to Detective Arndt, holding her with both hands at the waist the way you would hold a doll, carried her upstairs and laid her on the hardwood floor in the living room. Detective Arndt immediately told him to set her down and to step back. She then took John Binet and put her by the Christmas tree. John followed her, and it was there that Detective Arndt described a very odd encounter. 
encounter with John Ramsey. She later gave an interview and described what she saw. And I see John Ramsey carrying John Lennon at the last three steps. hiding 
behind their lawyers. This was just the beginning of a long battle between the Ramses and the police. When the Ramses finally agreed to sit down to a formal interview, it had been four months since John Binet had been murdered. I repeat, four months. That is literally insane. I have no idea why they would do that. Like, if you're trying to find your daughter, why would you refuse to talk to the police for four months? finally agreed to sit down with the police. Their lawyers had specific requests. They wanted the questions beforehand, and they actually requested that the Boulder police weren't even in the room while they were doing the interview. I'm This is an excerpt from Web Sleuth Podcast. talking about John Rambis. Not even a little. He's just an absolute... Let's see what the Wire crime blog has to say.
I believe that the killers made some mistakes. Killer or killers. Right? The death may have been intentional, it may have been accidental. I believe that the people responsible for John Bonet's death made some mistakes. That we can actually look at the facts of the case and point them out. Now, the first mistake, and I believe this is foundational, right? The family lives in a mansion. The first mistake is that the ransom note that contains a 10 a.m. deadline in it is found on a hard-to-find, underused back staircase. Right now, let's invent. We're just speculating here. Right? I'm a civil attorney. I'm not a criminal attorney. We're just speculating here. Let's invent a reasonable kidnapper standard. Right? If there's a kidnapper involved here or a wannabe kidnapper, do you believe that they would leave the ransom note not in the kitchen, not on the front staircase, but on a back staircase, hoping that the note is found so that the family would be able to respond to a relatively short deadline, right? I'm guessing many of you on Christmas Day are going to wake up and start your day after 10 a.m. If a kidnapper took your daughter, wouldn't the kidnapper want you to find the note as quickly as possible? They wouldn't leave it in some little used corner of your house. Right? Hell, how would they know the parts of your house that you use? Exactly. Regardless of that. So right. let's it see just what. Huge risk to have done all of this. They sleeping family also inside the house. Wake up at any moment. Who else would have the time? They would say to write that intricate note and practice it beforehand, other than someone trying to cover up a crime. However, there have been more than 100 burglaries in the neighborhood months before John Bonet's death, and 38 registered sex offenders lived within a two-mile radius of the home. In 2006, a 41-year-old elementary school teacher, John Mark Carr, was arrested, and on August the 15th, he confessed to murdering John Bonet Ramsey. But his DNA didn't match, so we can go ahead and count him out. With that being said, this episode has been completed. I will continue my research on John Benet Ramsey and the family that possibly have killed her or any suspects that aren't dead because almost everyone is deceased. Except for, I believe, her brother and her father kind of amazing, isn't it? Well, that John sure has a longevity. Well, if you want to leave comments or have any ideas or thoughts about John Bernay Ramsey and her case, you can leave them here or you can hit me up on 
Deborah Lewis on YouTube or Forever a Boss on Facebook or you can hit 2020 Vision BWA on TikTok and Instagram as well. Thank you. Have a nice day. is called in. He gets the call at 9.30 a.m. and immediately 
Sending agents to the police station to set up a command center. Putting traps and traces on the Ramsey phones. When Walker, a former FBI profiler, looks at the ransom note, he makes a prediction. Just the content of the note, uh, the length of the note, some of the specific references in the note itself, caused me to, to form an opinion that uh, kidnapping was probably not the underlying motive in this particular crime. My belief was that the child would ultimately be recovered uh, as a homicide victim. Back at the house, Boulder officers do a search. There's a problem with a door to one of the basement rooms. They try the knob, but it's stuck. So they leave without ever seeing what's behind it. On the other side, not five feet away from them, is John Benet's body. Upstairs, the house is filling up with the Ramsey's friends. Friends who can contaminate the crime scene. By 2 p.m., when Walker arrives at the house, John Ramsey has found John Benet's body. It doesn't make sense. It's as if two crimes have collided inside the house, a kidnapping and a murder. Why would someone kidnap a little girl, leave a ransom note, and then kill her, and leave her body in the house before the kidnapping could take place? The FBI has never seen anything. fathom a reason why an individual like that would leave a ransom note unless the intent ultimately was also to remove the victim from the location and demand a ransom for that person. But that is not something that, uh, in my experience, uh, is, uh, is very prevalent. In fact, I've never seen that. The Ramses say a sexual predator killed their daughter. Why would a sexual
I'd, I'd rather not go there. Um, I can tell you that uh, uh, you know the, uh, the people that were there collecting the evidence did, did a good job you know, from our standpoint as far as the specifics. There's no doubt there are mistakes made in the first 24 hours of the investigation. Even Boulder's chief of police at the time, Tom Kopi, admits it. It is accurate to say that if we had it to do all over again, we would do it differently. It is also accurate to say that we responded well to what we thought we were confronted with. But the key to where the investigation goes wrong is unquestionably what happens once the kidnapping turns out to be a homicide. And by law, the FBI is no longer in charge. For the first time, Ron Walker explains what happened. I offered at that point uh, any and all FBI resources that were available uh, to assist the Boulder Police in their investigation. And uh, that offer uh, was declined. You know, probably in retrospect, might now say, gee, I wish I would have had 50 agents come up here and immediately the neighborhood campuses, for example. It's a gutsy move for the Boulder police, with its lean track record of 16 homicides in 10 years. Although the Boulder police called the FBI back in the case the next day, fatal mistakes are made during those first crucial 24 hours. Neighbors aren't in question, searches aren't done, and the key witnesses aren't. Although the Boulder police called the back into the case the next day. Fatal mistakes are made during those first crucial 24 hours. Neighbors aren't questioned, searches aren't done, and the key witnesses aren't interviewed. Was the family interviewed after the body was found? Some experts who call to offer help and are refused say the real problem is that the people in charge are old school cops fighting an old-fashioned turf war. There were a couple of very difficult customers to deal with who made decisions early about who done it. And because they were inexperienced, neither one of them ever having worked a homicide case they were in charge, basically. It was a rough period of time. As if that isn't enough to make this case complicated, there's one more unexpected element. 
Jones. Why did Rob just sit by and do whatever the police tell them to do? The war between the Ramses and the police starts two days after John Bonet's body is found. And soon the DA's office will get involved. From then on, the investigation will revolve around that awkward triangle. No one has ever seen anything like it. December 28th. 1996. The investigation into John Bonet Ramsey's death is only two days old, and it's already in trouble. The Ramseys hold a memorial service for John Bonet at their Boulder church. I was just there to have this. I think I could possibly make this tell me a lot. It, you can't function. I mean, I, you know, people say, well, if it had been me, I'd have been, you know, doing this and that. So, well, maybe you're a better man than I was, but I could. I was crushed in the full sense of that word. They tell police they want to take her back to Atlanta, their hometown, for burial. What we wanted to deal with immediately after the was to lay her rest. We came back to Boulder uh, a few days after that with the sole purpose of sitting down with Friends tell them the police are threatening the unthinkable to hold John Bonet's body until the couple agrees to interviews. Our friends and attorneys sat us down and said, "Listen, you need to know what you're dealing with here. They are trying to commit." And they related the story about how they had uh, ransomed her body, withheld her body for burial. In a letter to us, Boulder County Coroner John Meyer confirmed that the police had. Considered holding John Bonet's body. For an extremely religious family like the Ramses, it is unforgivable. To think that uh, withhold her body for proper burial was was, uh, was was barbaric, absolutely barbaric. Not to mention. I think you and I as lawyers. 
our clients, or, or would advise a friend in this situation, get a lawyer. I think we would. I mean, I know I would. This is when DA Alex Hunter enters the picture. He comes to the case with 25 years' experience, ready to do what the police have not. He calls in experts like Barry Sheck and Dr. Henry Lee from the O.J. Simpson trial a task force of DAs that include Dave Thomas of Jefferson County, who will go through his own well-publicized tragedy in Littleton, Colorado. I think it was at a point in time when he was starting to get truly drained emotionally and wanted to make sure that his objectivity was in place. Make sure I'm doing the right thing. Let's talk about this. Maybe you can think about that I haven't thought about. When you have one of those really tough, gut-wrenching cases, I think it is helpful. What Hunter doesn't see coming is John Ramsey's lawyers, Patton, Morgan, and Foreman. The National Law Journal lists Hatton as one of the nation's top white-collar crime attorneys. Hatton's firm pulls out the stops on the Ramsey case. Put together a team that includes a media relation consultant and their own private investigators. They take on ads, offering rewards. Publish sections of the ransom note in the local newspaper, asking if anyone recognized the handwriting. They start their own website and hotline. Evidence uh, to get the April. 
not the product of a joint decision between Kobe, Commander Heller, and my team. Ramsey attorneys said they want to see their client's statements from December 26th. It was a prerequisite to that interview, and I felt that was not giving up anything that I felt was significant. But the police do. They believe Hunter is allowing suspects to review their statements for discrepancies. The relationship between the DA and the police begins to crumble. Like everything else in this case, the rift, as it becomes known, goes public. Now, in the 25 years before this case came in, it was a cakewalk. So this has been a real challenge, which I feel grateful to have the opportunity, believe it or not, to try to meet. Um, it would have been very easy to go some different directions. You know, I mean, I had some people say to me, let's file a case, lose it, then you can write a book and make a couple of million dollars. You know, I mean, that, that's not how I think the American prosecutor operates in this country. And I'm proud, I'm, I'm proud an American prosecutor. By 1997, the three sides of the Ramsey investigation, the police, the district attorney, and the Ramsey team were all pulling in different directions. Under the glare of the media's spotlight, the investigation began to buckle. This media person asked me a question. He said, Tom, why are you so mad at us? And I said, I'm not mad at you. He said, don't you understand that we know the Ramseys did it, and we're going to help you get them? Things happen during the case that are often too strange to be believed. I said, so you hear what you just said? How wrong is that? How scary is that? How in violation of everything that you're supposed to believe in is that? The police and the DA are granting hundreds of media interviews to just about any reporters who ask. Just so I bring it up, you know, I, I spent some, a good deal of time with low reporters. I never read a tabloid before this case. But you know, your viewers need to understand the Globe had a million dollar reward in this case. They were getting leads that the cops weren't getting and that I wasn't getting. The Ramses and the police seemed to be waiting each other out. You said that you waited and waited and never had any word from the police about what was happening. Ninety days passed without any word. Why didn't you call them? A couple of times I called in, in the summer of 97. I mean, I just, we were hearing nothing. Wouldn't you think that the parents would be updating every once in a while as to what's happening on their child's murder investigation? It has become a case study in a homicide investigation gone wrong. There are now three investigations going on. One by the police. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the most complicated case I've seen. It, it, it certainly is complicated because, uh, uh, you know, of all of the, the different players that you've had in this thing, that sometimes uh, appear to be at odds with one another when the common goal should have been uh, just to investigate the case properly. And as I said, uh, 
justice is served. It's an extraordinary time that leads to unprecedented actions. One day, the commander, this commander Eller, came to me and he said, we have broken New York and I said, oh, really? Who do you think did it? He said, either you did it or your assistant did it. I said, John. He said, Alex, I have CDI said to me one day, we're bringing in our own lawyers. I don't think that ever had been done in another case in the United States. And my feelings were hurt for about three minutes. Equally insulting to the police, Hunter brings in his own investigator, a seasoned detective named Lou Smith, with a record of more than 200 solved homicides. But the strangest event in this strangest of cases has to be that four months after their daughter's murder, the Ramses still haven't done an interview with the police. Why didn't you give an interview before four months after the crime? Well, we did. First of all, we met with the police on the 26th. We met with them on the 27th. Uh, we gave them fingerprint, handprint, blood samples, hair samples on the on the one hand, I think there, there were, they were cooperative about certain things. And you and I know we, we get by law, blood, hair. But in terms of what they have a right to deny the government, it took us a while to get that. April 30th, 1997. The Ramses finally agree to their first interview with the police. They are both witnesses and suspects in their daughter's murder. Nothing that will break the case comes out of the December 1997, there's a new police commander on the case, Mark Becker. One of the main topics at his first news conference is the police request for a second interview with the Ramses. It's been approximately six months since we last uh, interviewed the Ramses. During that time, there's been a lot of investigation. We've uncovered a lot of new information. We have a lot of new questions, and uh, they can help us answer those questions. Uh, they have indicated every willingness to cooperate have done so uh, during my nine weeks anyways, and um, so I expect that uh, we'll get that done in the near future. But it won't happen. It will be three years before the Ramses and police talk again. They will do two subsequent interviews with the DA. Their only stipulation, to which the DA agrees, is that the police are not the relationship between the DA and the police will improve with Mark Beckner in charge. I think what what is unacceptable is that it took us that long to get it back. And we lost some ground. And we speak, you know, that, that's too bad. I'm not sure the case was compromised. Uh, I don't think it was, but we lost time. But if the DA and the police eventually do get back on track, there will never be a ceasefire with the Ramses. The confusion in the John Bonnet Ramsey case has always been that the 
back, one floor down. One floor down. And there was no one else in this wing. No, that's correct. According to the intruder theory, everyone is asleep. The intruder comes into this room and uses a stun gun on John Bernard. There are reported to be rectangular marks on her body, here and here, that match the prongs on a stun gun. down the spiral steps leading from her bedroom. Where was the ransom note found? Um, either on this stair or the first stair. Now, where would be the likely route on to the basement? Well, it would be one of two ways, either through the kitchen or this way through uh, what we call the butler's pantry. So you have to drop down an additional half story to get to this level of the house. That's a door. Ramsey's a 
Today, we're going to take a look at the murder of Marvin Gaye. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the Weird History Channel. Leave us a comment below and let us know what rock and roll stories or mysteries you'd like us to cover next. On okay, 2020 Vision, EWA. Marvin Gaye's death, we have to go all the way back to the formative years of his relationship with his father, Marvin Gaye Sr. Marvin Sr. was a minister and a healer with a Pentecostal church, which was known as the House of God. House of God advocates a strict code of conduct among its followers. Using those religious bylaws, Marvin Sr. ruled his household with a heavy hand. Sr. was also a conflicted and complicated man. He couldn't hold down a job for very long. He was a raging alcoholic, and he was a cross-dresser. He also abused his four children, often in the name of religion, and he dealt his harshest punishments on Marvin Jr. According to Marvin's sister, Jean, from the age of seven until well into his teenage years, Gay's life consisted of brutal whippings. Marvin Jr. said that living with his father was like living with a king, an all-cruel, changeable, cruel, and all-powerful king. If it wasn't for his mother, Marvin would have ended his own life. Similarly, Gay's mother, Alberta, admitted that her husband despised her son. My husband never wanted Marvin, and he never liked him. He used to say he didn't think he was really his child. But for some reason, he didn't love Marvin. And what's worse, he didn't want me to love Marvin either. Oddly enough, Gay developed his love for singing and performing from his father. Around the age of five, Marvin Sr. coached him in piano lessons, which Gay quickly learned by ear. Gay sang in his father's church choir, and it was one of the few stable times in the father and son's relationship. Flash forward to 1984. Gay was 44 years old, and he was experiencing a career comeback after five years of shaky output. His first post-Motown album, Midnight Love, was at the top of the charts, and he was enjoying the biggest hit of his career with Sexual Healing, which spent 10 weeks at number one on the Hot Black Singles chart. Sexual Healing eventually became the biggest R&B hit of the 1980s. Gay wrapped up his four-month tour, a tour that was a disaster from its opening on April 18th in San Diego, California. When it began, Gay was relatively healthy and happy, and relatively drug-free. But by a few weeks into the tour, he was going in heavy on cocaine. As the tour moved from the west coast of America to the east coast and back, Gay's behavior started to get increasingly erratic. Due to his non-stop drug use, Gay was becoming increasingly paranoid throughout the tour. He hired a small army of personal bodyguards, and he'd wear a bulletproof vest up until the point when he walked on stage. Somewhere in the middle of the tour, Gay became positive that a hitman had been hired to take him out. Later in the tour, he worried that he was being secretly poisoned. During a stop in Boston while at a press conference, reporters sat stunned as Gay revealed that he had hired famed attorney F. Lee Bailey to determine how, why, and by whom he had been poisoned during the tour. He added that a mystical potion concocted by activist and comedian Dick Gregory had saved his life. After the tour, Gay retreated to the large house he bought his parents at 2101 South Gramercy Place in Los Angeles to recuperate. For the next nine months after the tour, the house was home to non-stop madness. Marvin Sr., 
Alberta and Marvin Jr. slept in three adjoining second-story bedrooms. The couple hadn't slept in the same room together for over 10 years. Marvin's brother, Frankie, and his wife, Irene, lived in a detached guest house. Most of the time, Marvin Sr. was holed up in his room, swigging vodka, while his son shut himself away in his bedroom. Marvin's mother saw his condition and his addiction. His mother said Marvin would say, Mother, this is the last time, I promise. But when he was out, he would make a phone call, and someone would show up to deliver another batch. When Gay was in the mood, he'd call for women. Sometimes groupies would visit him in his room, and sometimes even his ex-wives, Anna and Janice, would come by. With his paranoia at an all-time high, Gay had an elaborate, expensive security and surveillance system installed in his parents' home. While he may have been living a fast and paranoid life, what caused the death of Marvin Gay was an insurance document. On Saturday, March 31st, 1984, Gay's parents engaged in several petty arguments. The main cause of tension was a misplaced insurance policy document. For the remainder of the day and well into the evening, Gay's father would storm around the Gramercy house and yell at his mother about the missing document he insisted she lost. Eventually, Gay had had enough and told his father to leave his mother alone. Marvin Sr. backed off, but continued to yell nonsensically throughout the house until he went to sleep. Marvin Sr. went to bed angry, and he woke up angry the next morning on Sunday, April 1st. Sometime around 12.30 p.m., he yelled up the stairs at his wife, who was in Gay's bedroom. Gay exited his room, leaned over the railing that overlooked the first floor of their home, and yelled back at his father that if he wanted to speak to his wife about the missing paperwork, then he should come up the stairs and ask her properly to her face. Uh, my name is Tommy. I live in West Texas. I'm 43 years old, and I'm a lifelong Republican. Uh, Matter of fact, I have never voted for a Democrat in my entire life. That includes local elections, state elections, federal elections. I am supporting Joe Biden for president in November uh, for several reasons. I grew up in the church, in the Christian church. I attended a private Christian high school and a private Christian university. Character and morals and values uh, are, are big to me and my family. Um, the hardest thing to watch has been the evangelical Christians sell out to this false prophet. He can't quote a Bible verse. Uh, the man says that he's never done anything wrong. You look at a way someone lives their life and you believe them. And one thing about Donald Trump is he doesn't, he'll say that he's something, but he doesn't pretend to be anything that he's not. And I believe uh, if Donald Trump is elected for four more years, that our country will go down the darkest path in its history, at least at least since the Civil War. I believe that. And I hope that there are like-minded conservative Republicans just like me that will finally say, look, this is, this is nuts. We've had enough, and uh, we can't support this. This isn't just a bandage. It's a shield of security, a sign of solidarity, because it means you fight for the safety of the ones you love, all of them. Get your flu shot at Walgreens and get a $5 coupon.
According to Alberta, Marvin Sr. immediately charged upstairs into Gay's bedroom where she was sitting on the bed by her son. As Marvin Sr. barreled into Gay's room, he once more began yelling at Alberta over the lost insurance document. Gay Jr. jumped out of his bed and demanded that his father leave. But Marvin Sr. held his ground. That's when Gay reportedly pushed his 70-year-old father out of the room and into the hallway, knocking him down in the process. Gay then repeatedly kicked and punched his father while he was on the floor. Eventually, Alberta separated Gay from his father. Marvin Sr. then picked himself up and calmly walked to his bedroom at the opposite side of the second floor hallway. Minutes later, Marvin Sr. re-entered his son's bedroom. He was holding a 38 caliber handgun. Gay had given that gun to his father several months earlier for self-protection. Without saying a word, he pulled the trigger. Marvin Sr. shot his son directly in the heart. Marvin's mother, who was standing about eight feet away from Marvin, said, My husband didn't say anything. He just pointed the gun at Marvin and shot. The shot entered Gay's chest, then ricocheted through his right lung, heart, diaphragm, liver, stomach, and left kidney before stopping against his left flank. As Gay's body lay on the floor, slumped against his bed, Marvin Sr. calmly walked toward his son and fired again, this time penetrating Gay's left shoulder just below the clavicle. Once Marvin's brother, Frankie, was made aware of the shots, he ran inside the Gramercy house. His wife, Irene, called 911. According to Frankie in his 2003 book, Marvin Gay, My Brother, Gay, only able to whisper as blood was pouring out of both gunshot wounds, told him, I got what I wanted. I couldn't do it myself, so I had him do it. It's good. I ran my race. There's no more left in me. When paramedics showed up at the scene, they demanded to see the gun before they would enter the house. After scrambling around Marvin Sr.'s bedroom, Irene found it under a pillow, carried it downstairs, and tossed it on the front lawn. By this time, nearly 20 minutes had passed since Gay was shot. As he was rushed to California Hospital Medical Center three miles away, medics tried to resuscitate Gay, but it was too late. Marvin Gay was declared dead on arrival at 1.01 p.m., one day before his 45th birthday. Marvin Sr. was immediately arrested and held at the Los Angeles County Jail on $100,000 bail. Marvin Sr. gave the Los Angeles Herald Examiner an account that varied slightly from the one his wife relayed. I pulled the trigger. The first one didn't seem to bother him. He put his hand up to his face like he'd been hit with a BB. And then I fired again. I was backing towards my room. I was going to go in there and lock the door. This time I heard him say, oh, and I saw him going down. I do know that I did fire the gun. I was just trying to keep him back off me. I want the world to know it wasn't presumptuous on my part. Marvin Sr. appeared before Judge Gordon Ringer on November 2, 1984 for sentencing. Ringer was very stoic about the proceedings and said the following about the case. This is one of those terribly tragic cases in which a young life was snuffed out, but under the circumstances it seems to be agreed by everybody, including the very able and experienced investigating officers in this case, that the young man who died tragically provoked this incident, and it was all his fault. When asked if he loved his son, Marvin Sr. reportedly stated softly, Let's say I didn't dislike him. Judge Ringer ordered a six-year suspended sentence and five years of probation. So what do you think? 
How big of a legend was Marvin Gaye? And how much of a loss was this for the music world? Let us know in the comments below. And while you're at it, check out some of these other music stories from our weird history. No, why in the hell he got away with probation? That is some fucking bullshit. Welcome to 2020 Vision. Let's talk about the killing and murdering of the six-year-old beauty pageant queen, John Benet Ramsey, who the world seems to not be able to find to kill her.
police department to the district attorney's office and back. So there's a, a problem with contamination. There's a problem with the, legally with the chain of evidence. So uh, unfortunately right now, other than what they are releasing, we really don't know uh, what uh, what is available that can now uh, be tested and if in fact that, that could give a benefit. I, I want to ask you all, if, if I can, uh, specific questions about some of the evidence that was so key in this case. Specifically the blanket that she was found wrapped in. Um, Joseph, the, the blanket seems to be critical. It came from her bedroom and it came from the bed that was unmade next to a bed that was made. Why is there such significance to that particular blanket in your opinion? Well, you know, as with every forensic case, Ashley, the idea here is connectivity. If we look back to what Lacard said over 100 years ago, every contact leaves a trace. And this idea is that whose hands did this thing pass through? And this is compelling relative to this idea of uh, putting, putting an individual in the location uh, with this little girl in her room, if she had been in her room, and then the blanket and her being found in the same location together in this kind of sequestered area in this massive house uh, down in the basement uh, where essentially nothing could be heard, nothing could be seen. They didn't find the body for an extended period of time, but yet this blanket is there with the body. So, Dr. Moroni, let me ask you a little bit about the forensic injuries to John Binet. Um, people know by now that um, she had quite a significant skull fracture. There was actually a hole uh, in her skull. I'm not going to show you that picture, but I do have sort of a, a replica of what the injury looked like. We're showing that to the audience right now. There's been a lot of talk that the hole and the, the formation, the placement of, of where that is, matches up with a, a, a baton-like flashlight that was found in the home. Is there something to this injury that gives you a clue or drives you any closer to any particular suspects? Well, if you look at how that uh, appeared, when I look at a skull, and I, if I show you a skull this way, the fracture, the comminuted fracture, the depression was on the right side. The only way you can have an injury on the right side, if somebody's facing you, is you either have to be left-handed or with the baton or with some linear object, you backhand the skull to create that. And the pattern is that the fracture runs the length. So that shows you that the blunt force trauma was not a round hammerhead. It was a baton-like object.
the significance would be the uh, Patsy uh, reportedly owned a pair of beaver hair boots. Uh, on the night that uh, this all occurred, uh, they, Patsy, uh, John, and John Benet, they had gone to a party, a uh, Christmas party at Fleet White's uh, residence, and uh, Patsy was wearing those beaver hair boots to that party. Uh, obviously, when they went home, at some point, the boots were taken off. Whatever happened to them, uh, it remains a question. Uh, however, uh, in under uh, a piece of the duct tape, there was a hair that uh, uh, supposedly was uh, identified by the, by an FBI analysis, and that it was a beaver hair. Uh, so it would be extremely important to know if in fact that those boots, the boots that Patsy owned that had beaver hair, if in fact that uh, hair was from her boots and where are they? And that is extraordinarily fascinating. I know that anybody who does a cross-examination would say, if you're wearing a pair of boots like that, that night, those hairs are all over the house and could easily have transferred. I can see both sides of that coin, which is part of the problem uh, when it comes to this case. Everybody zeroes in on a particular part of evidence and then sometimes to the exclusion of all else. And that's why the three of you are very, very valuable tonight. Because when John Bonet's body was found, it was pretty obvious that that little six-year-old had been tortured. I took the duct tape off immediately and then tried to untie her hands, but the, the knot was way too tight. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it loose, and I couldn't do anything but scream. Twenty years later, the John Benet Ramsey murder mystery remains a very active case. In addition to the new DNA testing, the brutality of the crime has always, always been a key piece of this puzzle. Because what it boils down to, investigators have said, as John Benet was killed, she was tortured. The assailants placed a tightly applied ligature around her neck, slowly torturing her. And then when they were through, they pulled that cord very hard and strangled her. Uh, joining me still, Bobby Brown, Joseph Scott Morgan, and Dr. William Maroney. Bobby, if I could just ask you, this notion of the torture, I think many people got that clear as day when they saw that garage with her hair entangled in it. Was there any other evidence that indicated this was intentional torture or that this was a byproduct of a, of a vicious crime? Well, what you have to ask is that, you know, if, okay, we are looking at a kidnapping you know was it an intruder what you know exactly how did this happen well the important thing about you know uh the the means that she was killed the garage uh you know as an investigator it's important for me to look at you know all right uh at what point did you determine that you know if you're kidnapping her at what point did you decide I'm going to kill her, but not only am I going to kill her, but I'm going to torture her. You know, did that go towards uh, that type of, a, uh, of, of strangulation? It can go with a 
sex crime. You know, it's uh, that it, it's it, that is common. But this had gone beyond that, uh, and it was you know as opposed to just strangling her to twist that and twist the garrote and twist it and literally squeeze the life out of this woman. Right. It just seems so out of place. And and Joseph uh, Scott Morgan. There is this notion as well, for those who have not seen the autopsy photographs, and I, I don't recommend it, it is very disturbing. She had two markings from the ligatures, two. And that tells a story about the way she was strangled. What is it? Well, with the markings uh, that are that are there on the neck, what this, what this implies is that this garage, this ligature was in place and it was readjusted a couple of times. So let's keep in mind, Ashley, that as, as was pointed out, this garage was literally twisted. What's really striking about this case is the fact that this knot that's involved with this garage that you find in place is very, very complex. This is something that would have taken an extended period of time to have, uh, to have facilitated time that would have been spent with the body. And based upon the fact that she's got this deep tissue hemorrhage that's going on and dwelling underlying this ligature, she's alive while this is going on to the point where she was killed. Dr. Moroni pointed out a moment ago that she's got this breast skull fracture. That's merely, merely the coup de grace that finally finished her off. But this choking event went on for a while. You couple that along with this extensive, extensive uh, uh, kidnapping note that's there, this person or persons that was involved in this would have had to have been with this body and this child for an extended period of time and have had time with her in a sequestered area. So, uh, actually, that's a, it's a great point because the timeline of all of this is very mysterious. At the same time, forensically speaking, maybe not so much. Dr. Maroney, the notion of these three sort of attacks, uh, there is the strangulation that did not result in death, and as we just heard, um, Joseph Scott Morgan said the ligature was moved, and then a re-strangulation where she was still alive because there is this blood pooling, as I understand it, and then this third attack, this this assault uh, with some kind of a weapon, uh, the head uh, injury that she sustained. Help me understand when this child died in that timeline of injuries. Well, the previous gentleman hit exactly on what happened in the strangulation, I believe. The first strangulation was an upward strangulation. That's why the mark is so low. And the second strangulation that was an adjustment is from an upward, which would have been a taller person, an adult, then pulling the um, deceased backwards. The second strangulation is more midline, where you have thinner muscles and a more fatal effect. And the furrow in the neck created by the garot shows the vitality of the subject at the time of the assault. So she was awake and it was uh, very terrible. But um, in the timeline, I would say that if she was being strangled, we may have an option that the head wound was first because of the accumulated blood. And if that's true, the head wound could have been an accident and not part of the assault. Whereas it's impossible to have an accidental strangulation. I'd like to inject that to say that if 
the head wound was um, after the strangulation, it might have much less blood and the hematoma may not have accumulated. Whereas if it was before, that's how we collected so much damage up there. But a two-stage strangulation and upward and then a backward. It's, it's all so mystifying and fascinating at the same time. And uh, I mean, Lord knows that we are getting better and better as crime fighters. Forensically speaking, that, uh, that smoking gun gets smaller and smaller. So it'll be critical to see what these new DNA tests uh, can tell us. Thank you so much, all three of you, for your insight. And I dare say you'll probably be invited back when we get the results of whatever is being tested. Thanks so much. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for having me. A mysterious death as a... Innocence has a face, then surely it is Madeleine McCann's. Since the night she disappeared, her anguished but unbroken parents, Kate and Jerry. Yes, we think so. We have enough evidence to say our suspect killed Madeleine McCann. Tonight, cracking the case of Maddie and the monster. night of May the 3rd, 2007. Apartment 5A on the ground floor of the Ocean Club Resort in Praha de Luge. It is where British doctors Kate and Jerry McCann have been staying for nearly a week with their young children, including three-year-old daughter Madeline. They joined friends for dinner at a tapas bar within the resort complex just a short distance from their apartment. Having earlier checked their children a number of times, at around 10 p.m., Kate McCann again goes back to the room. She finds Maddie missing and the ground floor window open. I'm the type to not give up. Soy el tipo que no se rinde. I'm the type to give type 2 diabetes my all. Steglajan gives you its all too. To help lower A1C, it's a once daily pill that combines two proven medications that work in three ways. It helps your body create less sugar, make more insulin, and remove some sugar. Steglajan is used with diet and exercise to help lower blood sugar levels in adults with type 2 diabetes. Serious side effects can happen, including pancreatitis, which may be severe and lead to death. Other serious side effects include dehydration and genital yeast infections in men and women. 